Well, good morning, Grace Road Church. It is very good to see you today. Again, especially if this is your first time with us, we're so thankful that you're here. Uh, Again, great to have you. Let's go ahead and pray this morning before we jump into the message. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for another opportunity to gather for worship. Father, to, to collectively set our hearts and minds on you. To sing together, to fellowship together, to encourage one another, to open your word together, to pray together. God, we say thank you again for this opportunity. And Father, this morning, uh, as we gather, no doubt, there are many who come with heavy hearts, discouraged hearts, fearful and anxious hearts, burdened hearts. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that you would set our eyes and hearts on the truths of your goodness and your faithfulness to us, and the truths of your goodness and faithfulness to your plan for the world, despite it feeling like things are crumbling down at times. And certainly, of course, Lord, we want to pray this morning collectively for the country of Afghanistan. Father, we pray for peace. God, we pray for justice. We pray for healing. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who face imminent martyrdom. Father, would you grant them peace and strength in the days ahead? Lord, we pray that somehow your gospel would go forth in power, even during these dark days, in that place, that somehow, by the mighty work of your spirit, the church would not only survive but thrive. And of course, Lord, we pray for the people of Haiti, Lord, that you would bring encouragement to a nation that was already on its knees and yet again devastated by an earthquake. Lord, we pray, like in all places in the world, Lord, may may people turn to you for hope and comfort and life. Lord, may your people be the faithful bearers of the good news which offers those things to them. But again, we pray, Lord, this morning for our time here. Lord, would you bless it as we open your word together. We pray all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, amen. Well, we are going to continue in our summer series through the Old Testament book of Joshua. So let me invite your attention to Joshua, of course. And what I want to do is I just want to give a very quick review of where we've been, just in case you haven't been here or maybe you've kind of forgotten kind of the big idea here. Uh, The Old Testament book of Joshua really is the historical account of God leading his people Israel, a people that he's created by his grace, leading them into the promised land. Having done so after rescuing them from the slavery in Egypt, providing for them, leading them through the desert all the way there. And so in Joshua, what we've seen so far is we've seen some really amazing ways that the Lord has worked on behalf of his people. Right? We've seen a miraculous crossing of the Jordan River into the promised land. We've seen the Lord fight on behalf of Israel to drive out and destroy the inhabitants of the land in places like Jericho and others. And then last week we were in chapter 10, if you remember this, and we saw the Lord miraculously make the sun and moon stand still by his sovereign power uh, so, uh, to extend the day for the battle at hand. Well, this morning, we're going to jump ahead quite a bit, okay? So last week, we were in chapter 10. This morning, we're in chapter 21, all right? We're jumping 11 chapters. And after two years in the book of Luke, that might seem like a joke, but it's not a joke, okay? Luke, I'm sorry, not Luke, Joshua 21 this morning, Joshua 21. And and we're going to jump ahead quite a bit, but, but let me give you just a quick outline of what happens in those uh, skipped passages, okay? So chapters 10 through 12 just continue to tell the story of Israel's conquest in the land. They take cities in southern Cana, 
Canaan, then they go up and take northern Canaan. And then chapters 13 all the way to chapter 21 uh, really tell the story of how Israel divides the land uh, amongst the various tribes of Israel to make their home. The allotment of the land for the tribes of Israel, okay? I'd encourage you to read through these chapters uh, this week, okay? But today, we're going to jump to the end of chapter 21. And we're going to look at three verses that really serve as kind of a conclusion to this big section that we're jumping. And ultimately, this passage this morning actually serves as the heart of the entire book of Joshua. So they bring with it this summary, the ultimate lesson that this book is meant to emphasize. So again, everything we've seen so far from Joshua 1 up to chapter 10, everything we're skipping, everything even before the book of Joshua leads up to this moment. Joshua 21, let's start in verse 43. We'll just read the last three verses of this chapter. It says, Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it. And they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And so again, this serves as the heart of the entire book. And really what it's doing is it's outlining the whole book, actually kind of working backwards. So let me explain. Verse 43, God gave to Israel all the land that he's promised. That's really chapters 13 to 21. Verse 44 says God gave them rest as they defeated their enemies. It's the first half of the book, right? Chapters 1 through 12. And then, of course, verse 45 is the summary of the entire narrative. That because these things happened, they did. God's promises proved perfectly true. And so this really is what the account of Joshua, all the conquests, all the division of the land, was meant to remind the people of Israel of, and certainly us today, that God is faithful to his promises. The story of Joshua is how Israel gets to see the fulfillment of God's promise to them as a people. And of course, faithfulness, the faithfulness of the Lord is a common theme throughout the entire Bible, right? Not just the book of Joshua, but, but all of Scripture speaks to the faithfulness of God, to his promises, right? It's spoken of frequently, even at times with superlatives. So for example, listen to what the psalmist says in Psalm 36. He says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. In other words, it reaches the highest of heights. We can't even see where his faithfulness ends. Psalm 119, verse 90. says, your faithfulness endures to all generations. You've established the earth and it stands fast. I mean, over and over again through scripture, through both words and through deeds, the Bible testifies to the faithfulness of God. It's a characteristic that's displayed on all of its pages. That God says something, he makes a promise, and he's faithful to that promise. That it doesn't fail. Now, and here's the thing. As Christians, we believe in the faithfulness of God, don't we? We believe that God is, uh, what God says is true. That God doesn't lie. That he's trustworthy. 
that he can and will bring about those things that he's promised. And, and really most, if not all Christians here this morning, could probably share the ways in which the Lord has proved faithful uh, to, to them sometime in their past, right? So, so perhaps the Lord provided for you financially once. Uh, maybe he brought healing to you, whether that was physically or mentally or emotionally. Or perhaps that season of difficulty never ended, but you did just feel this deep sense of comfort by the Spirit as you walked through it. I mean, and certainly if you're a Christian, you can testify to the fact that God was faithful to bring you to himself, to give you faith in Christ. And so as Christians, I mean, we're pretty good at believing and confessing the faithfulness of God, at least when it comes to the past. And here's what I mean by that. Where we tend to struggle with is confessing in and believing in the faithfulness of God in the present or in the future. Right? So, like, it's much easier for us to say, yeah, God was faithful because we've already seen his work. We've already seen how he would keep his promises. Where it gets harder for us is to say, while I'm still walking through the difficulty, God is faithful. Or when I don't know how it's going to end, that God's going to be faithful. It's a lot easier to proclaim his faithfulness in our past. I mean, again, it's too easy to look at what's going on around the world. This past week and a half especially. And wonder, is God really going to be faithful to his promises? To, uh, to care for his people around the world? Or, or to really make all things new by the flourishing of the gospel, for example? And maybe you don't have to look that far. But you can look right in the mirror and look at your own life. And wonder, is God really going to be faithful to care for and guide and provide just like he said he would? But understand, this isn't a new struggle for us today. Right? I mean, this has been a struggle for fallen humanity since the fall. And it was certainly true for the people of Israel, right? And I think if we look at their history, we can see kind of this common pattern uh, for doubting God's faithfulness to us. And so let me just give you a few reasons we might be tempted to doubt God's faithfulness despite his work in the past. Uh, and so one of those is the experience of delay. The experience of delay. In other words, we might walk through some hardship or difficulty. And even though we know what the scriptures say about God's faithfulness to us, we might start to doubt it because we don't immediately see how God will work in our circumstance. And so whether that's a difficult week that you've had or a difficult year certainly, or maybe it may be the difficult decades of life, it, we grow weary of trying to trust in God's promises when we don't seem to see, uh, see them seemingly come to fruition in our preferred timing. But what I want you to notice in our text in Joshua 21 is that Joshua 21 is the fulfillment of a God made all the way back in Genesis 12. Okay, Genesis 12 to Joshua 21. In Genesis 12, if you don't know, God makes this massive promise to a man named Abram. And Genesis 12 tells us this story. Genesis 12, verse 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make of you a great nation. And I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, now this is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. It's the covenant, a promise that God makes to Abram, later Abraham. And in this promise, God promises Abram that he's going to give him so many descendants that they're going to become this great nation and that this nation will be blessed by God. And then if you continue in chapter 12, God continues with the promise um, that, that Abram, uh, Abram, as he journeys away from home, he comes into the land of Canaan and God says, see, see all of this land, I'm going to give all of this land to your descendants. In other words, this land would be the promised land. Right? And so God makes these grand promises to this man named Abram, and then seemingly nothing. Right? No immediate fulfillment, which is obvious, right? To have a lot of descendants to make up a, a nation. I mean, that takes some time, right? Uh, so, so there's no immediate fulfillment. However, there wasn't even immediate progress towards the fulfillment. Right? Abram and Sarah, they're old in age. She's barren. They don't have any kids. And they grow impatient with the Lord to make good on his promise. And they doubt God's faithfulness to him. So they just take matters in their own hands, right? Again, they have no kids. You can't have descendants without a kid. And so Abram decides to have a child with Sarah's servant, Hagar. And then think through the rest of the story of Israel. Finally, they do have kids who then have kids who then have kids. And there's many, many descendants until Israel really is this great and prosperous nation. But then they're in bondage in Egypt. And not for like a short amount of time, for 400 years. And then Israel is finally rescued from bondage. This is going to be the moment. And then it's another 40 years till we get to Joshua 1. Like imagine what that must have been like. For those anxiously awaiting God to fulfill his promise. For, for those generations who later, who, who've heard over and over again about God and what he said that he would do, what he promised to do. I mean, clearly in the hearts of so many, doubt had started to creep up in their hearts. And wonder, I mean, is God really going to be faithful to his promise? Will he keep his word? Like, I know everyone keeps saying this about God, but I'm starting to wonder. Or like if I'm being honest, I mean at one time I was convinced that God was faithful. But now after all this time, I'm just not so sure. I'm starting to doubt it. But then, finally, in Joshua 21, God fulfills his promise. And that's important to consider. Because consider, on the other end of that long gap of time, what does scripture say? God was faithful. None of his promises failed Israel even on the other end of that long gap. Listen, you might be walking through a difficult season personally, and surely that season is lasting longer than you'd like. We all have those seasons. Perhaps you feel like your whole life is that season. But if we aren't careful because of the waiting, we might begin to view God as just another person in life who, who overpromises and underdelivers. But, but, but listen, we need to recognize that, that the delay... And God's provision is not a denial of God's faithfulness. Again, a delay in God's provision is not a denial of God's faithfulness. Like, don't let the delay of God's resolution to your circumstance, resolution to his work in the world, cause you to doubt God's goodness and faithfulness to you. 
Another reason we're tempted to doubt God's faithfulness is really just the existence of pain and suffering. Right? In other words, the very fact that pain and suffering exists is reasons for so many to doubt God's faithfulness and goodness. Right? We, we understand that this is one of the most common objection, objections to the character of God, if not his very existence. Right? And the argument goes, and I know you've heard this, you've probably felt this or thought this, that, that if God was good, if God was loving, there would be no pain, evil, or suffering in the world. Because if God was good and if God was loving, he would rid the world of the pain, evil, and suffering that's so rampant in our world. If God was good, if God was loving, if God was faithful, he would rid my life of pain and suffering. But of course, this isn't a new objection either, is it? I mean, Israel thought this themselves in their history as they wandered in the wilderness. So, so for example, if you remember, when Israel's released from bondage, from, uh, released by Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, they're on their way out, they're being led out, and you can imagine the hope and excitement for a nation saying, now's the time, God's going to provide for us, God's finally being faithful after all of these years, after all of these generations, they're on their way out, the Lord changes Pharaoh's heart to chase after them. And so he pursues them. And so here's Israel. They're on their way out, excited. And then all of a sudden, the Red Sea's in front of them and Pharaoh and his armies are behind them. And Exodus 14 says that the existence of this situation, the existence of this circumstance causes them to doubt God's goodness and faithfulness. Why would God allow this to happen? And then, of course, the Lord miraculously does save them. But, but just a few chapters later in Exodus 16, we read that they're in the wilderness and they grow hungry in the wilderness. They're without food. They need provision. And it causes them to doubt the goodness and faithfulness of God. Did you just bring us out here to die? I mean, there was food back in Egypt. Why, why did we leave? And then later in the book of Numbers, for another example, Numbers 13, they come up to the border of the promised land, this land that God had promised. They send in spies to check it up, and almost all of the spies come back and say, there's no way we can go into the land. There's no way we can stand up to the armies and, and people that are there. They're surely going to defeat us. And the people doubt the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord to keep his promises to them. And the truth is, I mean, our stories are not unlike Israel's. Right? We walk through difficult times, and the very fact that there are difficult times causes us to doubt God's goodness and faithfulness. Right? We might think, I mean, if God was truly faithful to me, I mean, I'm his child, he's adopted me into his family, then it's really hard for me to understand why I would be going through this. God must not be faithful. But listen, if that's you, and you're struggling with this idea, whether you're a Christian or not, consider that what we ought to doubt is not God's faithfulness, but our understanding. In fact, Tim Keller, he puts it this way in his book, The Reason for God. He says, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you just can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. In other words, if it's reasonable for us to believe that God could stop suffering, then it's also reasonable for us to admit we just don't know the possible good reasons he hasn't. But in reality, this experience of delay causes us to doubt God's faithfulness to his people and his word. Just the fact that it, suffering exists, there's pain, causes us to doubt. But what we understand that these reasons to doubt God's faithfulness are connected. 
and what they do is they stem from false expectations of the Lord. We have the false expectation that, that God will not allow difficulties in our life. Or if he does, we have the false expectation that he will deliver us and remove us, those difficulties immediately. And he can't possibly let them continue. But listen, what that reveals in us is that we just don't know the actual promises of God. Right? Like if we're unfamiliar with, with the actual promises of Scripture, what happens is we end up holding God accountable to promises he didn't actually make. And this happens all the time, right? People set their hope on promises God's never made. They're just promises maybe they've, they've hoped for or promises that they've heard maybe some preacher make on behalf of the Lord that the Lord's never made. Um, so for example, this promise that, that the Christian life would be without hardships. And once you come to faith in Christ, everything is smooth sailing. This promise that a Christian is someone who has no temptations. That a Christian will obtain perfection from sin in this life. Or this promise that a, a Christian will never face persecution for their faith. Or, or that a Christian will always have perfect health. Or if a Christian faces illness, they, they will be healed if they just have enough faith. Or the promise that, that a Christian will prosper financially and relationally and vocationally. All material ways because of their faith in the Lord. But listen, if we believe that God's promised those things for us, then of course we're going to doubt God's faithfulness when he doesn't provide them. I mean, of course we're going to feel like God has failed us. And during our time in Italy where we were missionaries, I had the opportunity to do some ministry at an African refugee camp. Uh, if you don't know, refugees would flee Africa on, on small rafts, and they still do this, and they risk their lives to make it to Italy just so they can hopefully find a better life in Europe. Um, and, and so uh, they would go out, they would uh, raise enough money to buy their way onto this raft, usually from Libya. They'd risk their life, go out a couple days on the Mediterranean, and then they would get picked up by a, an NGO or uh, the Italian Navy. And, and then they would be bused to different camps around Italy where they'd be uh, held and processed, um, trying to figure out what to do with them. Uh, and one of those camps is right outside of Florence, right, right where we were and so I and another guy from my church, we would go each week to this refugee camp outside of Florence, and we'd offer a Bible study with any of the guys who were interested, um, and, and they would tell us about their experience with church back in uh, Nigeria or Ghana or the Ivory Coast or wherever they came from. And they almost always told us the same story. They said, the man of God, that's what they would call the pastor or preacher, the man of God in my town promised that we would be rich if we had enough faith and if we gave enough to the man of God. So you can imagine their disillusionment when instead of being rich, here they are, they barely survived a trek across the Mediterranean and now they're living as illegal immigrants in a country that has no work for them. Right? You can imagine they're questioning God's faithfulness. Thankfully, we were able to sit down and point them to the promises of God that are actually found in Scripture. But again, it's not just them. Right? Christians all over the world set their hope in false promises. But thankfully, we don't have to be clueless to God's promises for our life. Because we have a sure word. Here's what Scripture promises. Hebrews 13.5, God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus in John 14 says, if I go and prepare a, a, prepare a place for you, 
I will come again and will take you to myself. And there I am, you may be also. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Romans 10.13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I mean, these and more, right? These are the promises we stake our hope on. These are the promises that we build our life on. These are the promises uh, that we view the world by because these are the promises that God's actually made. And how do we know those are God's promises? Because we find them in Scripture, what we call God's Word, right? And because God is faithful, none of His promises will fail. And so, by the way, let me just as the teaching pastor who, who teaches our Grace Road Institute, our theology classes, let me, let me just plug our classes just real quick for a sec. Every single person has a theology. You understand that, right? Even if you've never studied it, ever thought about it, everyone has a belief about God and how the world relates to God. That, that's theology, okay? Uh, so the question is not whether you hold a theology, but whether or not it will be a biblical theology, a true theology. And so our fall class that's coming up, we're going to announce it very soon, is on systematic theology. It's just basic Christian doctrine. So I, I just highly encourage you to consider taking it. If you've never studied it or if you want a refresher, I just want to put that on your radar, okay? And take advantage of things like Nancy Guthrie's biblical theology. I mean, that's, that's just great, okay? All right, that's a side note, all right? So all of that to say, everything before that, that when we think God has not been faithful to his promises, I mean, just consider we just maybe aren't as familiar with his promises as we'd like to think. However, here's the deal. As you read about redemptive history in Scripture, and you look at your own personal experience and the experiences of millions of others, it's important to bring another trait of God into the discussion alongside God's faithfulness. It's something that Israel forgot, and it's something we forget all the time. It's that not only is God faithful, but God is also sovereign. Now, now here's why that's important. To say that God is faithful means that God will keep his promises. To say that God is sovereign means that God can keep his promises. Right? As a parent, I, I have four kids. One of a parent's favorite words is the word maybe. Right? Um, that happens also to be one of a kid's least favorite words. Uh, it, because it can be seen as kind of like this cop-out where his parent just doesn't want to say no. And sometimes it is that, right? If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. But if I'm being honest, I use maybe a lot with my kids. I use it all the time. Um, and I use it, and here's my defense, all right? It's a strategic word, right? It's strategic. It, it, because it relieves the pressure of, of having to give this definitive answer to this pressing question in the moment, right? Sometimes it's okay to say to your kids, we need to talk about this a little bit more. I can't tell you yes or no right now. We need to think through this and, and have a chat, right? Like, like that's okay to do. That's the right thing to do and on some occasions. But it's also strategic to say maybe as a parent because it keeps us as parents from making any promises that we just might not be able to keep, right? Yes, maybe we can do that if something doesn't come up. Maybe I'll take you to the park if it doesn't rain, right? And that's important because we can't always keep our promises, right? But understand, the inability to keep a promise is not something that God's ever experienced. God doesn't have to say maybe. 
God's sovereignty means that nothing can stop God's plan for you and me in the world. No amount of evil we see in the world, no corrupt government, organization, or individual, no unexpected tragedy or setback, not even our own unfaithfulness to him. I mean, nothing can stop God from keeping his word. Again, think about Israel's history. Abraham and Sarah's age and infertility didn't matter. Israel in bondage under the rule of Pharaoh does not change anything. Israel in the desert for 40 years does not nullify God's promise. I mean, all of the greater armies and enemies did not stop God from fulfilling his promise. Because not only God is faithful, but God is sovereign. He will keep his promise and he can keep his promise. I mean, how many times have you promised maybe to meet someone, only later to have to call or text and say, hey, sorry, I'd like to be there, uh, but something's come up. This is out of my control. I mean, God's never had to make that phone call. He's never had to say, listen, something's come up. Sorry, out of my control. He's sovereign over it all. But listen, here's the thing. Not only does God's sovereignty mean that he can keep his word, it also means that he chooses the means through which he will keep his word. I mean, the story of God bringing Israel into the promised land and the greater story of God redeeming mankind reveals the promises of God are always fulfilled by the means of God. Which means, even through tragedy, even through judgment, even through trials and difficulties, even through extended periods of waiting, God is faithful and able to keep his promises to his people. But here's the thing, we have this nasty tendency, right, of letting our circumstances shape our beliefs about God. When in reality it should be opposite. We ought to be letting the truths about God shape our beliefs and our circumstances, shouldn't we? That instead of saying, man, this circumstance is is bad, therefore God is bad. We should be saying, my God is good, and therefore this circumstance, however unpleasant, however painful, however bad, will be used for good. I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know why, but I know who. God can and will keep his promises to work all things together for my good and his glory. Right? Don't let your circumstance shape your belief about the Lord. Have it be the opposite. With the truths of God, let it shape the way you view the world and your circumstance. And of course, the ultimate proof of God's faithfulness to us and the hope of God's redemption in the future, of course, is the cross, isn't it? What we have in the gospel. I mean, listen to what the, the author of Hebrews says about God's faithfulness in Hebrews 6. Verse 13, he says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The idea here, all of that to say, that, that when we swear an oath, we typically swear on something outside of ourselves, right? So you can imagine if you're in court, you're going to testify, uh, you can take the witness stand, what do we do? We, we typically place our hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth, right? We're, we're taking an oath on something other than ourselves. 
But for God, there, there's nothing greater than himself to swear by. So the writer of Hebrews says that God swore on himself, as it were. And, and by him doing that, we have, he says, strong encouragement to hold fast the hope set before us, which he goes on to identify. Listen to what he says in verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, because Jesus went to the cross as our sacrificial substitute, he's entered into the sanctuary, and there is where our hope lies. There is our steadfast anchor of the soul. I mean, think about it. If there was ever a moment in which God might not come through on his word to bring salvation, I mean, it surely would have been the moment that his son was going to the cross. And yet Jesus went to the cross. Jesus laid down his life for us, his people. He was faithful to us, a very unfaithful people. And of course, if you're here this morning and you've not yet trusted in Christ, you never rested your hope in that faithful promise. Again, let me point you to another precious promise of the Lord. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not some unrighteousness, all. Listen, turn away from your sin. Turn away from your self-righteousness. Put your faith in Christ today. God is faithful to forgive you. Not based on your goodness, not based on your righteousness, but on Christ's life, death, and resurrection. You can trust in him to keep that promise. But if you have trusted in Christ, let me, let me leave you with just one more encouragement. This is a quote from uh, A.W. Tozer's classic work called The Knowledge of the Holy. He says, every heart can make its own application of this and draw from it such conclusions as the truth suggests and its own needs bring into focus. The tempted, the anxious, the fearful, the discouraged may all find new hope and good cheer in the knowledge that our Heavenly Father is faithful. He will ever be true to his pledged word. God is faithful. Remember, the promised land in Joshua points to the ultimate and eternal promised land for all of God's people. And one day we're going to arrive there. And when we arrive there, we will be able to say, looking back, the same words that we read in our passage in Joshua this morning, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to his people, us, had failed. All came to pass. Why? Because God is faithful. We may not see it yet, but we will. Be patient. God is faithful to his word. Can we pray this morning? Let's pray. Father, we are again grateful for our day today. We're grateful. Again, that we could gather together to worship. Father, we're grateful that we can come with humble hearts and minds to open your word something we're so thankful for. God, that in your word, we have your sure and precious promises. Lord, we're thankful for your faithfulness to us. God, we believe your word is true, that your word is trustworthy. God, that you will not fail us. But Father, this morning, we confess we have our doubts at times. Whether it's because it's a delay in your coming, a delay in your provision, a delay in your healing, 
Maybe it's because we just don't think we should have any pain where we confess we doubt you. Father, we say we're sorry. Forgive us. Father, we pray, Lord, this morning you would help us by the power of your spirit, help us sort through the false promises that we've built our hope on. Lord, help us grow an understanding of scripture so that we can cling to your good and precious promises. Lord, it's my prayer this morning, Lord, that you would comfort the weary today. You would strengthen the discouraged. God, that you would encourage us to live um, lives that, that speak of your goodness, even through the midst of our pain. God, thank you again that you're faithful to us even when we're unfaithful. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, it's our prayer as always. Lord, if someone here doesn't know you, Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Give them saving faith today. May they set their life and eternity on the sure word of your promise. God, we love you. We praise you. And Father, it's our prayer, Lord, that you continue to bless our time as we continue in worship this morning. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray all these things.